Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solution Center L3C. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. I'm Nathan Loverich, a legal assistant with SATC, and I'm here today with Richard Kincaid, the founder and CEO of Sage Green Life. Richard, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, so we have a lot of people in the office who are really excited to hear about what, you, what you're doing and the living walls that you guys are creating. But before we get into all that, I want to take a step back and talk about your background a little bit because I saw that you grew up in a little town in Kansas. I grew up in an even littler town here in Illinois, so I'm interested to hear what life was like for you growing up in small town Midwest. Sure. Uh, Well, you know, it was interesting because I was one of six kids and um, we didn't know any different, right? It was sort of a little town. You got involved in everything, played a million sports and pretty idyllic, actually. But one of the things I give my parents credit for was they wanted all of us to get out and see the world. Uh, We weren't a, a wealthy family, but they helped all of us get through college. Frankly, all of us now are most of all of us have college degrees and or masters and we live all over the country and uh you know so i think it was just a uh an incredibly great support network uh being in a family like that and uh, sort of helped frame for me just uh you know the things that are important and then also just certainly i think a set of being humble about things um and not taking uh, really anything for granted yeah, I think that is a big thing in small towns where it's obviously very close, but there there is a lot of humility and a lot of people working hard to just make it better for the next generation. And sometimes I feel bad I didn't stay there and do the same. But you know, it was great. I mean, my my dad my dad was funny because he had a well servicing business, which is literally the worst job ever. You're literally repairing oil wells. Oh wow! You're getting covered with oil. Of course, all of us guys worked out, all the boys worked out there because he was like, I'm going to get you motivated for school. Yeah. And it definitely worked. You know, one summer and I was like, whatever, I'm going to study. Don't worry. But a lot of that was great because I think things you just did, you, you started cutting yards at 12. You, you know, it was just what you did. You did stuff. So going into college then, I, I saw you went to Wichita State. Shocker. Yeah. Wheat shockers, I'm sure, when you were <laughs> um, what was that like for you making that jump from from small town to a bigger school? It was actually a big jump because I started at the University of Kansas. Oh, wow. And I started in pre-med. And then I got into organic chemistry and said, what am I doing? I hate this. But I remember my first class at Kansas. So I had 68 in my high school class. And my first class at Kansas was like 800. I felt like I was at a concert. I got a lighter out. I was like, what? I mean, it was just crazy. It was so different. 25,000 students, and I had less than 300 in my high school. So I think um, what for me what happened was when I started to get into business, and I ended up going to Wichita State and transferring, going into business, that's when everything kind of fell into place for me. It was just that I just knew that's what I was supposed to do. Classes were easier. I got into finance and it was just obviously that was the the path for me but it was a big adjustment because um you know you just had very very small classes and quite frankly you know I pretty much got straight A's in high school and didn't do anything yeah and that was a little different with pre-med <laughs> so uh 
it was a good process. And, I, you know, the one thing I thought was interesting about it, too, back in those days, you know, was like my parents, there was no there was no this existential crisis about which school you're going to go to, right? They were like, there's three state schools, take your pick. It was not like, I want to go to Pepperdine. That was not happening, right? It was, and so it's another part of what I did learn in that was you can get a great education anywhere. I graduated from Wichita State and I've competed with people from Harvard or anywhere and it's just more about individual initiative and and hard work and self-discipline, quite frankly, more than uh, where you go to school. I have nothing against anybody that wants to go to the Ivy League, but you're not written off just because maybe you can't afford to go to the Ivy League. There's no way I could go to the Ivy League. We could never afford that. So making the decision to leave UK and, and go to Wichita State and study something else, was your family pretty supportive of that? Did they understand that, or were they just like, well, as long as you're still going to school? And Yeah, they were really supportive and frankly, always were supportive, and you 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 really kind of figured that out more the older that you get. Um, and I think the interesting thing with my parents was they they knew they would miss us, but they wanted us to get out and see the world. Which, you know, I just took things for granted. You know, my my dad was really quite an intellectual. I I thought everybody got the New Yorker and the Atlantic and the Wall Street Journal every day, and they tried to expose us to so many things that I didn't realize was unusual until I got away. Um, whether it was the arts, my dad was an opera buff in the middle of Kansas. I mean, it was just things that musical theater, just a lot of things that they worked so hard to expose six of us to that I didn't even get it till I got out of school. So yeah, they were very, their big thing with us was just whatever you do, do it well. And they were relentless about that. I don't care if it was, you know, a pickup game of basketball. They were like, you give 100%, you're playing sports, you're doing school. And frankly, all my siblings do that. I saw after, uh, after graduating from Wichita State, you went directly to University of Texas to get your MBA. Is that correct? That's correct. So what made the decision for you to go directly to... Uh, pursuing an MBA because I've had conversations with people who have done it right out of undergrad and then people who have waited a little bit and there are obvious advantages to both but for you what what kind of made it make sense for you to go right away and, and pursue that? You know to be to be perfectly honest I think for me I mean at that time it was like ranked uh, 10th and I wanted to make sure that I would get out of Kansas to be perfectly honest <laughs> I mean it was like I was afraid if I got, I had deferrals too, and I was afraid if I waited, then I'd get tied down. And to me, this was an opportunity. And actually, my parents highly encouraged me to do that. Even though I could have gone to school in Kansas or I had jobs, they really encouraged me to go on to Texas. And and it was the right decision for me. I always laugh when I talk to the business school now. I'm like, you guys would never let me in now. (laughs) Right? I was like, I would never be qualified, right? But um, that was the right decision for me because it did open up a lot of doors that wouldn't have been opened had I not gotten that MBA there. I'm interested to hear because I've been to Austin a couple of times. It's a booming city. Millennials are moving there like crazy. What do you remember about Austin uh, and being there uh, at UT getting your MBA. What do you remember about the city then? I loved the city. It was always just a killer music scene. And, you know, I thought the teachers were just 
it's so good, uh, you know, in the graduate school. One of the things I really appreciated about being in a graduate's program was the just the wide range of people from all over the world, quite frankly. I mean, if you consider where I grew up, and I think that was a real mix of people and cultures and uh, just great experiences. And they had a really good, all my classes were great, and they had a really good uh, placement office. So I was able to have multiple job offers before Mm -hmm. I even got out because I was very nervous about that. But it opened up my eyes to a broader world um, and and really kind of set me up to, uh, you know, pursue a career in real estate. Yeah. And kind of expanding on that, can you tell me what maybe changed about you when you went through grad school? Like what what you learned or or maybe even personality stuff that changed about you that kind of helped you along? Yeah. So the biggest thing Texas did for me, to be perfectly honest, was it gave me a lot of confidence because I was really concerned that I was going to get buried there. There were 600 students and most of them had work experience. I didn't. They were from all these other, quote, schools that were better. And I ended up getting a 3.98 out of a four point at two hours of B in a 66 hour program because I worked so hard because mm-hmm. I was so afraid. I was like, how am I ever going to compete with these people? So what it, what it really taught me was I could compete. Mm-hmm. I could, I could compete with the best of these students. And it, and it really gave me confidence that I didn't have coming out of that little school, going to a state school. That was the biggest thing for me. I just realized if I worked hard, I could, I could play with anyone. So that was probably the biggest thing I picked up there. You don't have to, you know, like I said, you don't have to go to, so-and-so school doesn't mean you can't be really at the top of your field. Yeah. And I think Texas was the first glimpse I had of like, hey, I can do this. Yeah. So when you when you graduate from Texas and, and you now have your MBA, uh, I see you did a lot of really incredible stuff in your career, but kind of where did that start? Where, what did you do right out of out of grad school and how did this sort of track start for you? So I, I uh, got hired. I ended up taking a job with First Chicago. I'm dating myself now, <laughs> right? Um, right out of, of the Texas MBA program, and I came, moved here and went through their training program and went into the real estate group. And so I was in real estate doing construction lending, uh, and ultimately I'd been doing the real estate construction lending, and uh, one of my customers actually recommended me to Sam Zell's organization was looking for someone to help on the financing capital markets and they recommended me and I interviewed with them and um, so I took a job with them in August of 1990 right when real estate was absolutely falling apart <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was wondering what I did. Why would I, you know, because it was really getting difficult. That was right in the tail end of the savings and loan crisis. And it was some tough years. But the organization was, you know, incredible because Sam actually really runs a meritocracy. He didn't care where you went to school. Didn't care how old you were. Just cared about whether you could get stuff done. And that was a perfect environment for me. And and we were growing like crazy and raising um, the first real estate opportunity fund. So we were raising money from pension funds and going out and buying in this really weak environment. And out of those four investment vehicles spawned 
you know, some of the largest real estate organizations in the world, Equity Residential, Equity Lifestyle. We had 20 million square foot retail portfolio and then Equity Office. And ultimately I went and I was working for Equity Office um, as CFO and then ultimately CEO. And that experience working in that environment for 17 years was basically we went from zero to 39 billion at Equity Office. It was insane. It was... But what an experience because um, he's just one of the great dealmaker businessmen I've ever met and just gave me huge amounts of opportunity. I was 33 when I was made CFO and I was 40 when I was made CEO and I was not qualified for any job I had, yeah. basically. <laughs> so, yeah, so it... Uh, but it was just an amazing, uh, amazing experience. And uh, credit to that organization where you could, you could really just, if you could perform, you could, you could do really well there. You had to work really hard, but there's no easy way to get ahead that I've seen so far. I'm assuming you're a small town kind of work hard, you know, do the work, help the family, all that stuff kind of played into that as well. You kind of used to that know that if you do the hard work, then you could get the, the gains out of it. Yeah, well. you know, I, it was funny. I've had a lot of people go, well, like, did you set up like a five-year plan and decide where you wanted to be? And I was like, no. What I tried to do was literally, I, you know, I tried to do the absolute best thing, job I could do every day, and then good things happen. And that's what I, lots of times what I tell college kids, I'm like, if you really want to get ahead, you just have to be incredibly reliable. You have to make it easy for your boss. You have to think as much as you can, ask questions when you don't know something, but try to solve those things yourself. And if you you give 100% every day and and you're you make your you get things done, you're going to go places. And the other point I would say is you got to be willing to take some risk. I was willing to take jobs where I knew they were a stretch and they scared me to death, but that was how you get a shot to basically move up. You have to be willing to, to take some risk and stretch yourself a little bit and, and learn. And uh, honestly, that, that's how you get ahead. I tell, I tell you, most people that are totally honest with you, they would hire for effort and self-discipline any day over peer IQ. Because right now, I think college rewards... Uh, memory more than they resort than it rewards judgment business is all about judgment problem solving and figuring out a way to get stuff done yeah that's what it is and if you can do those things you're going to do really really well that's that's really the the truth i was reading an article um where they were interviewing you and one of the things that you said about sam that really stuck out to you was that he encouraged everyone to think like an entrepreneur Can you tell us what that means or or how we can do that? What does think like an entrepreneur mean for either in that business or just in general? Well, he he really taught you to to think two ways. One was to act like an owner. So he wanted every decision that you made to be from the framework as if that you were writing a check. And frankly, he incented us with long-term incentives and things that would pay off if if the enterprise did well. Um, Even when you didn't have money to invest yourself, he'd actually lend you money. He wanted people to act like an owner. He was also massively 
focused on not having um, bureaucracy. So we had a very flat org chart before flat org charts were in vogue. And he just wanted to make, he, he would always push you to just get to a decision and an answer promptly. Everything was promptly. Someone else was interviewing me and he said, what was it like working for Sam? I said, it was just order. It was just always right on the line of being kind of unreasonable. <laughs> but that's how everybody was. And everybody was, there were a lot of really young people and they were really smart and we were making things happen. And it was great. Um, but, but I think back on a lot of the things that he was doing years ago, like casual, he was always casual yeah. before casual. And you know why he did that? He wanted to break down the barriers between the executives and the people working there. You weren't going to be defined by the guy with the Armani suit and mm -hmm. the, and he had this flat organizational chart and he will take meetings with almost anybody when he has time. So it was, it was really, I, you know, I realized how much I learned there and how much that impacts me and the other organizations just from a lot of the things that he's been doing since the early seventies. Yeah. And I mean, that's obviously, it's easy to tell that that's had a, a huge effect on you because uh, in your role as CEO now, this is not the first time that you've had that executive level leadership. So I saw that you were uh, kind of starting involved in the Because Foundation. Yes. And so I believe that's what you did after leaving or well, after selling off um, equity office. So tell me about the Because Foundation and kind of what it was like for you to start that. Yeah, so we um, we started doing documentary films, um, and we were using building coalitions of not profits, and we were we were telling a story with a documentary film that was meant to be a tool for all of those like-minded not profits to tell their story, galvanize their mission, and you know the theory was, I can write a check or I can I can create a tool that that is more wide ranging. And so we did that. We did six of them. And it was it was really an interesting process because I knew nothing about documentary films and I didn't really I never worked with directors before. And so I think uh, I liked it. I think after the Bully Project, that one was probably the biggest one we did. And it was an extraordinary film. It was nominated for a, an Academy Award and an Emmy. And it was just a really incredible story following five families that their kids had been bu really bullied. And I think that one was very impactful. But I started, started to move away from that when I felt like, see, my whole point was the outcomes and the coalitions and empowering them to make a difference. So I wasn't doing it f to do documentary films. I was doing it to, to cause change. Mm. And I think part of, uh, I haven't done any since then, partially because I got too busy, to be perfectly honest, with um, Sage Green Life and some other things. And they're quite um, consuming, those projects and the outreach and all that. But I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. And I still think it's a very powerful medium to try to energize people through some of these, these issues that um, we would just as soon ignore, homelessness, human trafficking, bullying, and a story is very impactful and has an infinite shelf life. So you could go look at our films right now and it would resonate just as much as it did on that first day. And so um, so I'm really proud of what we did. I may do it again some other time. I just don't have the bandwidth right now. I've got way too much going on. 
It's always interesting to me, someone who is obviously so uh, business oriented and, and, you know, has had a lot of great leadership experience to hear about them doing these more creative things, because uh, I have a lot of friends in creative industries. And so what is it like for you to kind of lean into that creative side of you and to show the, showcase that? And um, how does that really come out in your everyday life as well? Yeah, well, the the one thing that I also did growing up was, you know, I was a pretty good musician. I studied voice for like ever. And I was in a whole bunch of mus- musical theater production. So I've always had a creative side. Mm-hmm. I just chose to go into finance so I wouldn't starve. <laughs> So I, all through college and everything I was doing, a whole, and I've still done uh, music, I just decided that was, would, would probably leave me stranded in Kansas, and I definitely wanted out. So I've always had the other side of uh, my brain that I wanted to work through, and I appreciate that about creative people. I think um, you know what you get when you, put, when you build a team and you get people that think differently and you create an environment where they have a voice – you can you can see things a little bit differently and maybe come out a better solution. Um, and I think creative people they do tend to think differently, and that's a that's a skill. So you can't you don't want to build an organization where everyone's just like you and is really an analytical or. That's why you know the whole world is not made up of accountants. No offense, accountants, but you need that whole group that feels hopefully passionate about what they're doing and can contribute because that's how you make better decisions. So I've always wanted to encourage both. Yeah. And so as you say that, I think about, you know, this concept of everyone having a place at the table and and bringing other people in, you know, uh, bringing more diverse backgrounds and everything in. And so um, for you, what's important about that, about bringing other voices and and different kind of people into and giving them a seat at the table, which I'm sure you have now the opportunity to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, with Sage Greenlife, probably one of the more interesting things is the employee base. Virtually all of them are very passionate about what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's how that's a critical component for me hiring there. You got to care about putting these green elements kind of everywhere yeah. and you should be proud about the fact that virtually every environment you can honestly say it's better after you leave but that attracts a lot of different people you've got horticulturalists that are very creative you've got designers you've got people with construction background and then you need the other traditional corporate things and and I think that's why you know um, you know you can create what I hope is a really great place you know to work too because I'm hugely focused on assuming that all my employees are professionals and they're going to get their job done, giving people flexibility. I mean, some of the best employees I ever had were were mothers with children, you know, that maybe needed to work four days a week or whatever because they just got their act together because they didn't have any choice. Yeah. Right? They had all these other things going on. So if I had somebody that said they needed to work from home or whatever – you'd always get so much more out of them for that flexibility. So I'm a huge believer in all that, the flexibility, working with people's where they are in their life and respecting that, whatever that is, and Mm -hmm. empowering them because you get more back. I've seen it time and time again. So 
that's the type of uh, culture I like. That doesn't mean that you're not expecting results. It doesn't mean you're not holding people accountable. This is not meant to be some real touchy. It's just if you assume people are professionals, you treat them like that, you give them that flexibility. My experience is most people give you so much more back. And obviously, if you have people that abuse it to the wrong people and you have to deal with that, but that's that's really an exception. So that's my my thing is to find people passionate about what they do, give them the flexibility to do it and work around their lives. People have busy lives and I've seen it. I've seen it work over years that uh, if you honor them where they are, they're going to give you back so much more. And doing that kind of honoring people and and showing them the respect that uh, obviously everyone is due. How does that change the way that you sort of interact with clients? Because one of the things that we see here is that, you know, people have obviously changed a lot, generations have changed a lot. And so with this sort of digital age and the technology, the way that we communicate is a lot different, both in person and obviously mostly over electronic communications, email, social media, and, and such. So how has that kind of changed the way that you interact with people because of the way that, that you interact with your employees? Well, I think that, you know, despite all of the technology, I think you have to still realize that almost every business relationship comes down to a personal connection, and it's probably never going to change. You know, people do business with people they like to do business with, and vice versa. If you don't they don't like doing business with you. They're not going to. So I think, I think you've got to try to cultivate those, those personal relationships. And that doesn't mean you don't use the technology, but you still want to get to know someone. I think that's a mistake for some people coming in right out of school are almost uh, less reti- more reticent to sit around and have face-to-face communication. But that's still, you just got to, it's hard to get to know somebody by text. And uh, so I think that's one of the things younger generations have to get used to, which is you got to try to get you got to really try to sit with someone at some point and know who they are and connect with them, because that's still how everything gets done. Mm-hmm. It's still all about relationships. That's sales. That's anything. Um, doesn't mean you aren't going to communicate like that, but you, you, you're making a mistake if you don't think you don't need to actually get in front of someone and connect with them more more personally. Well, let's get to Sage Green Life because I've been waiting to hear about this. And if you haven't already, you should definitely Google them, find them because I was looking the other day at some really cool stuff. So explain to us what a living wall is. Let's start there. So a living wall is really what it sounds like. It is a wall that's vertical. And the reason that that's interesting is because if you think about all of the the walls both outside and inside, you can put hundreds of plants on a wall and it's automatically taken care of by a built-in irrigation system and either LED plant lights. And so even a small one of our products may have 120 plants in it. And so what it allows you to do is just change the entire look and feel of an environment. And there's a design trend called biophilia, biophilic design, 
which is bigger over in Europe and Asia, but is coming here. And it's, it's, it's actually all about putting nature back into uh, spaces. And the reason for that is there's a lot of data that shows that it's not just that you think that you're better. Exposure to nature actually makes you physiologically better. It, it lowers cortisol, it reduces sick time, and some of uh, another fact is inside the air is 12 times worse than outside. It cleans the air, takes out pollutants, and you are left with a little bit, uh, just a f better feeling um, than you are when you're not exposed to nature. Now, that sounds, should sound kind of obvious, because if you think about real estate, people have been paying for reviews forever. Yeah. You want a view of the lake, it costs yeah. you more. You want a view of the beach. The only thing that's changed is that they've gone through and said, you know what? You don't just think you're better, you're actually better. Mm -hmm. And so the best example of that, probably the most famous, would be Apple's campus in Cupertino, where it's a 40-acre park with glass around. That's biophilic design because that exposure to nature all the time is better for their workforce. Now, you can do that anywhere. You can do that in cities. You, can do, you don't have to be in a concrete jungle, and you certainly don't have to be in a cube farm with fluorescent lights. Yeah. And so... Um, we view, view, view ourselves as a tool to create these amazing environments so everybody has some exposure to nature. What inspired you to start this? I mean, how, how did this come it about? It was a, a moment of insanity. Um, <laughs> well, I was starting to see at Equity Office, um, it was interesting to watch the technology companies who were way ahead of everybody else in realizing how valuable talent was and how important it was to create a better environment. So one of the things that stuck with me, we built the headquarters of Electronic Arts out in Playa Vista in Los Angeles, and I went out to see it. It was like the coolest office space ever. There were soccer fields and all these breakout rooms to play games and foosball tables, and I was talking to that person going, wow, this seems kind of, it's awesome, but it seems kind of inefficient because, you know, at that time, half the CFOs in the country were like, squeeze them into 30 feet. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, it was Dilbert at its height, right? You know, and these guys were going the opposite way. And he said to me, it always struck me was, look, if I can get a game producer to just be a little bit more productive and get a, a, you know, a huge game out that much faster, that's, and I have a really talented one, that's just worth so much to me, the marginal cost of all this stuff. And they were right. And I always felt that the rest the rest of the business community would catch on to that at some point. And the second thing that was interesting was in Europe, they were starting to put up living walls, and they were really bad products. Hmm. And people wanted them anyway. Right? Hmm. So you're kind of going, hmm, what if you had a much better product that was easier to take care of, that had reliability, really low maintenance costs, and you could put it anywhere could be interesting yeah and so in starting this um <laughs> i read that you said i should have shut it down several times and thankfully didn't kept going what is it inside of you that like said okay you know keep this thing going let's keep working on it let's keep making it better keep hiring the best people to get it off the ground and sort of yeah i mean these things are hard you know the one one of the things that you know, I didn't fully realize when we were starting it was, you know, in some ways we were creating an industry over here, mm -hmm. which is much harder. There was no market leader. There was nobody to copy. There was no price transparency to go, 
oh, that's really cool. How should I, how should I, how much should I charge for that? There was no, really nothing to go off of. So you kind of had to go from scratch with a lot of trial and error. And then coming out of the financial crisis, you know, there was just a lot of reticence to spend any money. And so one of the things that I've learned about the whole early stage investing game is so much of your success or failure is just being in the market at the right time. And I think fortunately we're in a spot now where the market is really coming to us. But the hard part for us was just to get enough of them up so that we could point to them and say, that's one of ours and it's better than everybody else and we have lower maintenance. You can only assert that for so long. So there's always this process of trying to get someone to like believe in you and the, the the breakthrough for us came when we with a partner won an rfp for the apple stores and we started to do apple stores on the outside and just the fact that apple has such a presence and they did magnificent walls and still do i think that helped us immensely because we could point to something um but there these these are very difficult businesses to build because um, particularly when there's you know if you're doing a software firm you can look at a thousand companies and say well I should do it like that yeah. here you had to invent everything then there's also a high degree of complexity and since you've got to have a manufacturing supply chain a live goods supply chain you have to understand plant maintenance construction plant lighting and we learned if you don't have expertise in all those things then somebody can make a mistake even though it's not your well's fault it's blamed on the wall. So it took a lot of time, took a lot of, uh, of learning. Um, but the opportunity was, hey, there is no market leader. We're emerging as the market leader. And there's a wonderful network effect with these. The more we do, the more popular they become, the more organic growth we get. And we're sort of in a sweet spot where we're really starting to grow. But it hasn't been easy. So you have walls everywhere now, like throughout the country? Yeah, we have walls. We have walls all over the country, and we have them in every segment of commercial and residential real estate. Plus, we're in sports stadiums and museums and um, even some hospitals. So markets are huge. And what I'm hoping is that just more and more people just say, why, why not? Yeah. Price like art, it's not... It's a super uh, cost-effective tool to reposition an asset, and I just don't think people have to be in really sterile, bad spaces anymore. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, the thing that I like most than anything is almost everybody we do business with orders again. So yeah. the first conversation is, well, gee, why would I do that? And then they get one, and they're like, no, that's cool, I want more. So it's, it's, a, it's a really good experience once you try it. And I think um, we're hopeful, actually, to educate some cities because I think some of the streetscapes, you know, we have a lot of data that these not only reduce CO2, but they stop heat traps. And so it's, it is a solution out there that's non-controversial. It makes your community more beautiful. It takes out CO2, it stops heat traps. So as a tool to fight climate change, I'd like to see people start to find solutions that everybody can agree on instead of trying to work for some utopian solution that no one will adapt. But why not green your cities? It's just, it would make the city more beautiful and it works. What's been really like good for you? The, what, what gives you the really good feeling about what you do and, and what makes your day really feel like, oh, that was a great day? 
Yeah, I think the best thing, you know, I'm really proud of the products and how people just love them, you know. And so there's not many businesses where you can literally know with certainty that you're going to create a, a more beautiful environment with your product every time. And that's that's the most rewarding part of it because we've had to go so much back and forth to come up with this product line and get it where it is but you know our stuff will lose on the inside will will lose less than two percent of the plants and the competitive living walls lose 30 to 50 percent annually right so it just works yeah and that's you know and that's important because you want people to have a good experience so that they do more not just because that helps us, because it helps kind of everything. So I think we've really, I'm just proud of the products. Um, that's actually really rewarding. Just yeah. when I know that people are going to love it. Uh, let's talk about your team for a moment. You know, you have a great team there at Sage Green Life. How do you kind of approach making your team, hiring your team, managing your team? And, and what have you learned about, you know, the, this group that you have and, and what they do and how they enjoy what they do? Yeah, so I'm I'm like a really low touch manager in the sense that I like to hire people and I like to be there when they need me, but I like to let them do their job. You know, and so part of where do I spend my time on? I spend a lot of my time on business development, trying to open up accounts and certainly a lot on high level and you always gotta raise capital on these things. But what I try to do is find people that are really talented and passionate and um, let them do their job. And I'm, I'm there to help them if they have questions, but I'm not. I'm, the last thing I am at this stage in my career is a micromanager. It's like, if I have to micromanage, that's a very bad day. And so I think that's, that's the type of people that, that I hire. And, um, and for a lot of people, they, they love that. Um, some people don't. One of the things that's harder in a small business that I have to acknowledge is that the there's not a lot of depth, and at every different stage, and this was true because at Equity Office we went from zero to 39 billion in 17 years. There is a there you're, you're challenging your staff at every level of growth, and the frankly the hardest thing of building any of these businesses is some people can grow into that responsibility and some people can't mm -hmm. and so part of the the real challenge is to try to get the people to be able to grow but the second thing that you have to do for the rest of your employees is acknowledge when they can't and then you got to treat them well and you got to transition them out it's the worst part of um any job but it's super critical because in a small business unlike a large business there's no depth yeah. so you have to constantly learn and evolve and think about a brand new business where you don't you haven't optimized any of your processes and at each level of sales there's something else that you've kind of got to do so for certain people it's amazing because you'll get tons of opportunity for other people uh, the pace is difficult, and part of what your job is try to bring everybody around, try to coach and mentor as much as you can, but you, as the leader, you have to be willing to make changes, and it's better for both parties. If you have somebody in the wrong job, it sounds 
mean. It's not. What's mean is not making those decisions and letting that person struggle and having the rest of your team go, come on. Yeah. I hate that part of it, and it's uh, – it is, it's, been, it's been part of any sort of rapidly growing business that I've seen. So the best thing you can do is be honest, treat people well, help them find something else if you have to transition them out. But you have to deal with it. That's, that's the worst part. So the future for Sage Green Life, if dream big, anything you want, what, what do you hope for the future of your... You know, I'd love to see it be like, uh, I'd love to see us go public and be like the first really pure green play that's trading because I don't think there are many alternatives for people and I think there's a lot of social impact investors that would want to invest in it Um, and I think it can be a really compelling brand and we've got a lot of other ideas and products and things that we would we would like to do to introduce um, lower price points and we'd like to find some products for the home that are easy to take care of uh, mm-hmm. and using technology monitored. So I, I'd love to be able to be one of the first really pure green plays that's on a public, it's a public company and I run public companies and I just think it would, it, it could really attract a really big following. So hopefully we can do that. Yeah. You've given us a lot of great thoughts and I really appreciate uh, what you said. Uh, I'd like to wrap up with just, if you could leave us just one thought for people, especially we like to think of people who are early in their career, maybe just getting started, something that you would say to them about, you know, what it takes to be a good employee and what it takes to be, to, to just be a good person uh, trying to figure out what you're going to do. Yeah, I, would, I, I mean, I think the best advice I can give to some young person getting started is just... And it's going to sound blatantly obvious, but just be really reliable. And and unfortunately, that's rare. I mean, if if you say you're going to be there at 8, be there at, you know, 7.58. Um, and just establish a track record of being credible and reliable, and that's just going to go so far for you. And then the other thing I would say to people, you can't run into your boss all the time with, every question you got to try to solve some of them but i think you also have to you have to understand when you're in over your head and ask for help what your boss is looking for you to do is try to solve as much but to know when you're out over your skis mm-hmm. and i think it's not a sign of weakness i was in over my head the my entire career so <laughs> that's a really something i see some young people are afraid to do and then some some of that leads to mistakes, uh, misunderstandings, or, or things that hurt that employee. And, you know, I, I, that would be my two things. Just be really reliable. Try to problem solve, but don't be afraid to say I need help because that's going to go a lot longer than you. But the other thing I would say to you is, you know, some of the, some little things that a lot of students don't worry about, your communication skills matter a lot. You know, don't send stuff out really with typos you can't use text lingo in an email you know those things matter that's an impression that someone is having of you and your boss is not your editor yeah. that's not to say nobody has typos i have typos too but just, that's what i mean by being reliable care and if you care and they see that 
and you're giving all your all, you're going to do great because that's what people are looking for in, in an employee. Thanks for taking the time to come in and, and record with us. We really appreciate all the thoughts. It's been great. Uh, I've learned a lot, so hopefully our listeners have as well. Um, so thank you, Richard Kincaid. Tell us again, how do we find Sage Green Life and how can we interact with you guys on all the platforms? Uh, www.sagegreenlife.com and then we're, we're also on social media as well. The website's great because it has a gallery of all our products on it. Um, yeah, we'd love to uh, hear from you and start telling your uh, employers that you, you'd like to see more nature into your space. Yeah, That would really help us. That's great. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. We look forward to hearing from you again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solution Center. As always, feel free to reach out to us on social media with your comments and suggestions. You can email us at solutioncenter at satcltd.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.